welcome to episode 13 of Everything Under the Sun, a weekly podcast answering all the most pressing questions children around the world have about life on Earth. My name is Molly, and today I have three questions. Our first is from Benjamin, who is only four but can speak Spanish and English. He has a question about languages. I'm Benjamin, and I'm four. I know like football and tennis and hockey. Uh, why do people talk different languages? Hi Benjamin, what a great question. Clever you for being able to speak two languages. Isn't it interesting that we humans speak different languages all over the world? There are around 7,000 languages spoken on Earth at the moment. It's quite strange really. If we could all speak the same language, then we would all understand one another. But it's more interesting that we all speak different languages. These 7,000 languages are not spread randomly over the planet. In fact, there are more languages found in tropical parts of the world than cooler parts. So on the island of New Guinea, there are over 900 languages spoken. But in Russia, which is 20 times bigger than New Guinea, there are 105, which is still quite a lot. So why is it that we speak so many languages? Interestingly, we don't actually know for sure. Linguists are the people who study languages. Linguists don't know exactly when people began making up words to communicate with one another, rather than making sounds or moving their body around in different ways, like animals do. But they're sure that's why humans came up with language, to say things they wanted to say with words. Linguists do know that migration, which is when people move from one part of the world to another, was one of the reasons why there are so many languages. It's generally thought that humans first lived in Africa and then spread out in different directions, travelling in groups. As they went, over time, the languages the different groups spoke turned into new ones. People in all directions had to learn to live in the new places they travelled to. Some ended up in deserts, some in the snow, some began to live in rainforests, and others found themselves in flat grasslands. They all saw different kinds of weather, different animals, landscapes and plants, and lived differently depending on their surroundings. So new words were needed to talk about their new homes and help them survive. Language grew up around culture, which was just different ways of living in the world. Eventually, all the new ways of living led to all the new languages, and they all evolved over time. The languages adapted over time as new people came into the area, or people traded, or at war with other groups, married into different groups, and learned different languages. Many languages have words in common, as some words were borrowed from other languages, and they all influence one another. There are a few languages like Basque that don't seem to be related to other languages, but perhaps they were back in time. Some languages have died out, like Latin, but we know they existed from writing, and even now there are languages that are likely to be lost as so few people speak them. Ainu is the language of the Ainu people who live on an island in northern Japan called Hokkaido. But there are only 15 people left in the world that can speak Ainu. The more used language of Japanese is taking over there. This is rather sad because with that precious language goes the Ainu culture and all the words they used to describe the unique way they saw the world. Even now, the English language is changing so much. Each year, some words are taken out of the English dictionary and others added in. That's the same for all languages. They're alive and they shift and change depending on what the people who speak them are up to. Recently, a lot of words to do with nature were taken out of the Oxford Junior English Dictionary and replaced with words like 
download or cut and paste. That just seems such a sad thing to happen that a book was written called Lost Words by Robert McFarlane, illustrated by Jackie Morris, which has a poem for each of these words to bring them back into our language. They're words like dandelion, otter, bramble and acorn. They're words of nature, wild imagination and play that were once a part of everyday life for English-speaking kids. One final language fact is that the last speakers of the Maypree language, which was a language spoken by the Maypree tribe of the Amazon, were parrots kept by the tribe as pets. The birds picked up words from the language from the people who kept them and carried on speaking them, even after all the people in the tribe had been killed by a neighbouring tribe. The story goes that in 1799, an explorer called Alexander von Humboldt wrote the parrot's words down. Hundreds of years later, an artist taught six parrots to speak these words and brought the Maypree language back to life again. I hope that answers your question, Benjamin. If you have a question you would like answered on the show, all you have to do is ask an adult to record you asking it and ask them to send it in to me at molly at everythingunderthesun.co.uk. Just ask an adult to use their smartphone. There's a voice memos app on iPhones and a voice recording app on most smartphones. Thank you. On to our next question, which is about writing down languages and comes from Shiva. My name is Shiva and I am eight years old. I love cheetahs and leopards. My question is, who invented writing and what did they write about? To answer Shiva's question, I'm handing over to a very special guest who worked with the oldest writing in the world, written back in the time when writing was invented. His name is Irving Finkel and he's a curator at the British Museum. Over to Irving. Hello, Shiva. That's a jolly good question. But my name is Irving and I'm a curator in the British Museum and I work with this oldest writing, so I'm in a good position to answer your question. So as far as we know, that's to say, as far as we know from archaeology, the oldest kind of writing was invented by the Sumerians who lived in what is now Iraq, what we sometimes call Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq, about 5,000 years ago. Sometime around a bit more than 5,000 years ago, some people thought it would be a good idea if they had a way of recording words in some kind of permanent way so that somebody else could look at the marks and get the words and hear them in their mind. So they invented a kind of picture writing which turned into what we now call cuneiform writing by about 2800 BC and when that was ready in about 2800 BC there were people who could write down anything in the world so they could write down their Sumerian language or another language or English or Chinese or anything if somebody spoke the words they could take a stick and make signs on clay and write it down so that's when it happened for the first time and it's a rather important thing they wrote about everything you can imagine Sometimes there are stories, sometimes there are songs, there are letters, there are things from bank managers about taxes and money, there are things about the army, there are stories about the gods, there are things about wars, there are all sorts of things. In point of fact, it is rather interesting that when writing was invented for the first time, the people who had that tool, who suddenly found they had writing, used it for almost the same range of things as we do today. And we are lucky because they wrote these things down on bits of clay and when they were buried in the ground, they just lasted. So when we dig them up today, we can read them as if they're new messages. So once they had writing, they used writing 
more or less like us. There were no newspapers or something. There were no paperbacks or anything like that. Everything was written on pieces of clay, but it was a proper writing system, and it lasted for 3,000 years before eventually it was replaced by one or other thing, most important of which was, of course, the alphabet. Thanks, Irving. What a brilliant answer. Well, I recorded Irving's answer with him at the British Museum when I was on my way to see the show on at the British Museum at the moment called I Am Ashurbanipal, King of the World, King of Assyria. King Ashurbanipal was once the most powerful man in the world. He reigned in a city called Nineveh in what is now Iraq, around the time Irving has been telling us about. Ashurbanipal created a huge library of this early writing on clay tablets. He had a room full of scribes writing out everything that was known at the time. Stories, spells, myths, legends, all kinds of things which he had written onto clay tablets in perfect writing in the language Irving told us about called cuneiform, which he spelled C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M. The scribes wrote by pressing a pen made out of a reed into the clay. Then when it was dry, the clay tablet went onto the library shelves. If you visit the exhibition at the British Museum on for another few weeks, you'll see a big display of clay tablets from his library. You'll see little clay letters, big clay tablets, all kinds of sizes of clay tablets covered in this very special writing. Not many people can read cuneiform. Irving can, though. He can read a clay tablet like you or I would read a postcard. But you could learn how to read it. The British Museum is always looking for students of cuneiform to help them read the tablets in their collection. If you joined them, you would get to take part in one of the biggest jigsaw puzzles in the world. Let me explain what I mean. At the end of King Ashurbanipal's reign, his incredible library of clay tablets was smashed into pieces by his enemies and set on fire. Luckily, this actually helped the library to survive because the clay tablets were baked into terracotta. Like when you put a clay pot into a kiln, it lasts longer. The baked tablets survived in the earth for thousands of years until archaeologists dug them up and brought them back to the British Museum. Because they were smashed into pieces, Irving has been working for a long, long time to piece all the smashed pieces of clay back together in what he has called a giant cosmic jigsaw. If you learn cuneiform, you could help with this epic jigsaw puzzle and piece together ancient spells and stories. One clay tablet I loved in the exhibition was a letter. People then sent clay tablets in the post in special clay envelopes. And you can see this little envelope on show as well. The letter said something along the lines of, I wrote to you a while ago, but you still haven't replied. So the problems we have now were often the same as back then, 5,000 years ago, when people were creating a system of writing as well as the idea of libraries, which we still love using today. Another tablet I liked was written on by King Ashurbanipal when he was a teenager learning to write. It had much bigger, fatter writing than the other tablets because the king was just learning how to make his letters. I wrote about a tablet belonging to the young king in my first book called The Secret Museum, if you want to know more. Do you have school books or drawings on with your letters that look like you're still learning to write? Some things don't change, and the ancient king was just like you. He had to learn and read and write by practising. I hope that answers your question, Shiva. Our next question is about something Shiva said she loves. Can you remember what she said? Yep, she said she loves leopards and cheetahs. So here's a question about cheetahs from Martha and Heidi, who won tickets to go skating at the Natural History Museum a few weeks ago on Everything Under the Sun. 
Martha. My name is Heidi. And, and we live in Glasgow. Our question today is, how can cheetahs run so fast? Thank, Thank you. Hi, Martha and Heidi. Well, cheetahs are the fastest animals on land. They can move from 0 to 60 miles an hour in three seconds and run 70 miles an hour when they're chasing prey. That's two and a half times faster than Usain Bolt, the world's fastest human. But like Bolt, cheetahs love to sprint. They're not so built for long distance running. The reason they're so fast at sprinting is their bodies are shaped for speed. They're very light, but have very long legs. The perfect combination for being fastest animals on land. Cheetahs are very light for big cats. They weigh 45 kilograms for males and 36 kilograms for females. Compare that with a male Bengal tiger, which on average weighs 221 kilograms, almost five times as much. They have little heads and big eyes that can see really well and lock onto their prey. Plus they have big nostrils so they can take in lots of oxygen. They have a big heart that pumps oxygen around their body quickly and big lungs so they can take 150 breaths a minute when they're sprinting. Cheetahs have a small rib cage that means their long, slim legs can move more than other cats as the rib cage doesn't get in the way. Their spine is super stretchy so that their legs stretch out far in front and behind them. They can take huge strides as they run. If you watch a cheetah running in slow motion, you'll see their back legs come so far in that they can overlap with their front legs just before they stride forwards and only one foot touches the ground at a time. Their long tail is half the length of their body and head. It's so long to help them balance and steer when running super fast. They sprint in a short burst to attack prey, but it can take them a while to recover from a chase. Their claws don't go back inside their paws like most cat claws. They're always sticking out like football spikes to help them grip when running. Cheetahs have put so much into being fast with light bodies that they couldn't fight off a leopard or a lion. They'd be much better off running away. This is a problem for female cheetahs when they have cubs because they raise the cubs on their own and the cubs can't run fast. Only 10% of cubs in the Serengeti, which is a beautiful wild place full of animals in Africa, survive because it's very hard for their mums to protect them because they're not good at fighting, only running, and they can't run away with their cubs. There's a move at the moment to make cheetahs an endangered species because then there will be more awareness of the fact that there are less and less cheetahs in the wild and we really need to protect them with conservation and protect the land they live on. I hope that answers your question, Martha and Heidi. Last week I asked you to send in your impressions of pirates to win a copy of my new book, Natural Wonders of the World, a breathtaking adventure exploring our planet's natural wonders. From firefly squid glowing against the night sky to a cave filled with the largest crystals ever found. Here are the best pirate impressions. My name is Alaric. I am four years old. I like Lego, and this is my pirate impression. Ah, oh, my sea dogs. Hi, Molly. I'm Ishan. I live in South London, and this is my impression of a pirate talking. Ah, shiver my timbers. I've got a joke for you. Why are pirates so bad? At the alphabet. I don't know. Why are pirates so bad at the alphabet? Because they insist there are seven seas. Gotta go now. There's land ahoy. Hello, my name is Alice. I'm seven years old and this is my brother Benjamin. He's two. And this is our pirate impression. 
Oh, that's my eyes. My name is Magnus. I'm six years old. I like reading. This is my pirate impression. Are you on a battle of rum? That's your scurry sea dogs. And the winner is chosen by a pirate. Ishan. Congratulations, Ishan. You've won a copy of Natural Wonders of the World. I hope you enjoy it. Natural Wonders of the World is available in all good bookshops now and you can order a copy online. Right, that's it for this week. Wishing you all a very lovely week. A huge thank you to Irving Finkel at the British Museum for telling us all about the invention of writing and the things people wrote about 5,000 years ago. And to Shiva, Martha, Heidi and Benjamin for this week's question, as well as all the pirates who sent in their impressions. A big thank you to Ash Gardner at House of Strange for the theme song and Audio Networks for all the lovely incidental music we use this week. I'll be back next week answering more questions from children around the world in another episode of Everything Under the Sun. If you would like another chance to win a copy of Natural Wonders of the World, next week we're going to be with the Natural History Museum in London. And we're going to also be talking about elephants and bees. So please send me your best impression of buzzing bees. The winner will win the last copy of Natural Wonders of the World. So do send in your questions and your bee impressions. There's information about how to do that on the show's website, everythingunderthesun.co.uk. If you like the show, please do rate, review and subscribe and tell all your friends to do the same. It really does help. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.